Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there to all you Dodger Brooklyn aficionados. Uh, My name is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And uh, today, uh, an earlier guest who was supposed to be on, uh, unfortunately, had to postpone. And so uh, I'm bringing on the Brooklyn Trolley bl- uh, blogger, Mike LaColon, for the uh, special 50th episode. We're going to do a few things different in this episode. For one, we have a little bit extra time. Uh, we're going to be going an hour and a half or so, maybe uh, you know, maybe a little longer depending, but uh, we'll see how that goes. And uh, also, I'm going to be biking through the streets of New York while we're on this uh, this uh, podcast, heading towards the Brooklyn Bridge. And uh, and from there, once we get onto the Brooklyn side, uh, Mike, you're going to help me navigate and see uh, see what we can come up with, where we can uh, what we can talk about, and where I can go. It'll be my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And what's up? What's going on, man? How's everything out in Brooklyn right now for you? You know what? Last night, the Nets hosted the uh, Toronto Raptors in in Game Three of uh, the first round of the playoffs, and it was the first game here. And this came on the heels. I don't know if you are aware of the situation, but the Toronto general manager in their pep rally up in Toronto prior to the series starting uh, perhaps got a little carried away with himself and punctuated the end of uh, his comments with an F Brooklyn. Well, you know, you, you would think that shouldn't go over well or particularly well here. But nevertheless, <laughs> yeah, nevertheless the crowd for me personally, was a little bit disappointing in the first period. But uh, they came around and, you know, they, they built momentum throughout the game. And by the fourth quarter, they sounded and, and gave the Nets, you know, a, a good home crowd, uh, a home court advantage. But uh, very disappointing. I think they should have come out of the gate a little bit better, a little bit stronger, a little bit meaner, considering that the general manager was sitting in there on the sidelines just waiting, waiting for the wrath of Brooklyn to descend upon him. Uh, well, it, well, let's, it be, came. let's be honest. You know, it, it, the uh, it, basketball and professional sports is uh, is, is a uh, returning thing, and and uh, it's still fresh in uh, in Brooklyn. And uh, they're not, you know, it, it's not at the level of you know 50 years that Madison Square Garden had to build to to come out strong at the beginning of every uh, every first first quarter in playoff games. You know what I mean? I do, and I think. Uh... I think uh, there's a lot to be said for that. There's a lot of truth in that. Perhaps this town still needs to relearn how to be a major league town again. So, uh, you know, but over the course, I mean, in a sense, this is still new here. I mean, there's X amount of fans that will travel from New Jersey here into Brooklyn to catch games and whatnot. Okay. But uh, at the same time, this is still a new situation here in Brooklyn. Maybe over the course of five years or so, the ticket holder situation will straighten itself out and correct itself to more accurately reflect the more passionate fans from perhaps maybe who uh, those who had the money right up front and were able to put out for, uh, you know, what was a, a, a large outlay for their first season tickets. That's, uh, that's a good point, you know. Uh, how was last night? Last night they won. So, you know, winning cures all, whatever, no matter what I say, a win is a win is a win. Uh, they're they're up in the series two games to one, and the next game will be tomorrow, and uh, we'll see if they can uh, take a stranglehold of the series and uh, take a three-one lead back to Toronto. Now you were a Knicks fan at certain points in your life, and uh, on the Rising Alpha Report, uh, the Mets podcast, 
you went on a bit of a rant at the end uh, as to why you became you went back to your uh, your hometown team. Uh, yeah, uh, primarily because it's a Brooklyn thing for me. I was I was excited with the development right off right off the bat when Bruce Ratner uh, announced that he was going to purchase the team and had plans to move them to Brooklyn. He did that around two, 2003 or so. So right from the very beginning, right from go, I was on board. And, you know, to me, again, it was strictly a Brooklyn thing because of my modern-day attach, attachment with the Brooklyn Dodgers. I thought it was great for the borough. I thought it was great for Brooklyn, you know. Uh, I'm still one of those proponents who feel that this place should be its own city. So in that regard, you know, I said it was huge for the borough. And, you know, uh, I watched uh, Barclays Center go up beam by beam, and, uh, you know, I developed a great attachment to the situation. And for the sake of Brooklyn and my passion for this borough, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a Brooklyn Nets fan, but I grew up a Knicks fan, make no mistake. Uh, but they've pissed me off over the years, you know, and, and they evolved into a situation where, uh, the situation was right. It was like a perfect storm. They had pissed me off to a situation where they were able to step in and, and fill a huge void in well over a decade of disappointment. And trust me, now that I'm 47, I experienced some very bad seasons and, and, and lengthy seasons at that during, you know, my fandom as a Nick. There were the Al Bianchi years as when he was general manager of the Knicks and those those seasons were not all too pretty either. Uh, but the decade of Isaiah Thomas and, and then just the, the just utter disregard that James Dolan had for Donnie Walsh and, and the way that whole episode ended and, and what transpired from that situation, it's it still to this moment leaves such a huge uh, and sour taste in my mouth that I just can't get over it. And... Uh, you know, on a, on a totally separate level, here Brooklyn is, and, and you know, not for nothing, but uh, the Garden and Dolan, uh, the guys just shivering in his shoes because for the first time they have to deal with direct competition within the city limits. And uh, I, I love the whole situation. And, and as a Brooklyn guy, you know, I'm for Brooklyn and let's go Nets. Well, you know, clearly uh, when you look at the evolution of Brooklyn. Uh, and especially in its, uh, its you know, sports, uh, the sports that uh, it calls its home, um, you know, you could almost say that the uh, the Sandlots gave way to the Blacktops and basketball became more of the, the sport of Brooklyn than, than uh, baseball in, in some regards. Uh, you know what? Baseball, uh, excuse me, basketball has always had a, a solid foundation in Brooklyn. Uh, you know, if you can exclude baseball from the equation, which this is the place where baseball really grew up, became an adolescent, and then spread amongst the nation. But basketball, since, uh, you know, the 40s, uh, has had a, an exceptional relationship with basketball. And even when I was a kid, uh, if anything, I was playing the ball before, I believe, I started playing uh, a baseball on uh, on any kind of level, and that was because of uh, the kids on my block and the guys across the street from me. They were like five brothers, and uh, their pop, you know, paved over the backyard and put up a, a basketball hoop, so the, the the block really descended on that yard, and I started playing basketball after soccer, and baseball eventually wound up being third in, 
by the time everyone got a hold of me, you know, uh, on a regular basis, and baseball became my true passion, which it always really was. But as far as actual participation, uh, right. I was playing basketball before baseball, ironically. Say that again, I'm sorry. Uh, ironically, I was playing basketball before I uh, I was playing baseball, I guess. Well, at least to the best of my memory, because of the situation and growing up on the block that I did. Well, you know what's interesting is I passed uh, a ballpark yesterday in Williamsburg. It's completely cement. I mean, and and, and you see these cracks in the uh, in the ground where all this green is come is popping out of it, as if uh, you know baseball and greenery is trying to reclaim its its land. Uh, yeah, and if you let it, it certainly will. You know, that's some resilient stuff. Uh, the earth I mean, will... you know, we're, ta- we're talking about, you know, we're talking about a cement ballpark, which really <laughs> has no place, which really has no place there, considering that there's no basketball hoops on there. It's yeah. literally two sides of of that uh, a batting cage uh, or whatever the, the backstop. It's two sides uh, of the ballpark have a backstop on, on it. It's not sharing its place with uh, the blacktops of basketball. And, and so I just I look at it and I go. What are you doing? You know? <laughs> well, you know, nothing really stops Mother Earth. Wherever, wherever she wants to go, she will. If she <laughs> has to break through some pavement and concrete, well, so be it. She'll do it. Exactly, exactly. You know, I, I was in some parts of Williamsburg. Uh, this is a good transition. And on the other side of the BQE, I really don't find that that's, it's aesthetic uh, appealing. Although on the other side of the BQE, closer to the bridge, and uh, in the south and north street numbers, uh, I, I do find it uh, to be pretty. I used to kind of not uh, group it in with some of the other neighborhoods, but there's there's a parts of Williamsburg that are very, very aesthetically pleasing. Uh, yeah, without a doubt. Uh, you got to understand what happened over there, especially on the north side. That was strictly zoned for uh, industrial, industrial purposes. It wasn't until Bloomberg rezoned it for residential that everything started taking off on there. You know, uh, a great big uh, void opened up, and and the vacuum sucked all the newcomers in because, let's face it, if you were in Brooklyn already, you weren't moving to Williamsburg. You just stood where you were. So that just opened the door for a lot of what I call modern-day pioneers coming to the city to live out their urban fantasy. Yeah, exactly. That's that's not what I did when I moved to Brooklyn. I moved to Crown Heights. But, I mean, Williamsburg was certainly you could say, uh, you know, a pioneer in uh, the new age of Brooklyn. Yeah, that, that was certainly a, a unique situation where a, a whole swath of land uh, within Brooklyn just opened up uh, and, and was just ripe for the uh, for the invasion of all, really. They're it's finally nice doing some construction on the uh, Domino factory. Uh, yeah, that's been held up for a while. Uh, you know, they've been haggling over what they're going to do with that. Some guys, suppose, you know, converting into into condos, and then you know, of course, the uh, protection people uh, were opposed to certain aspects. It's not the whole project as a whole. So, you know, when when and how that project ultimately ultimately uh, excuse me ultimately moves forward it will be interesting to see. It will be interesting to see, and you see it all through throughout the city generally. You know, I'm going down Broadway right now to give a little update as to my location. I'm on 29th and Broadway, uh, which still has so many old, uh, you know, turn of the century, turn of the, the 20th century uh, buildings, and uh, some of them were obviously used for factories, and you see them all. You know, the majority of them, there's there's really not any factories uh, like there used to be uh, throughout the town, and they're all they're all being uh, lived in now. Right. Well, you know, 
that's the way change happens. Uh, urban renewal, out with the old and with the new. And uh, you know, if it's not that, if it's not done that way, uh, the municipality and the state and the federal government aren't. You know, they're certainly not going to step in and revitalize whole areas like that. Uh, it, it takes entrepreneurship. It takes uh, risk takers. And it takes pretty brave people, actually, to uh, be, be the initial settlers and, and, and get momentum going and flowing. So conduce to them. They created a whole society over there. And, uh, you know, it's good for the borough. What's good for the borough is good for everybody. Exactly, exactly. Well, uh, what else is on your mind, Michael? I'll let you uh, steer this one in terms of uh, Brooklyn, uh, since I'm steering another wheel. <laughs> well, how close are you to the Brooklyn Bridge? Oh, right now I'm at 26th and Broadway. Um, let's see some some land. You know, the, the the Flatiron Building is clearly coming up. Fifth Avenue is now a lot closer on Broadway at 26th Street, intersecting at a uh, really 25th as opposed to 23rd. Well, um, you're, then you're not too far away from like uh, Broom Street and Canal Street around there, or Broom and Broadway, I should say. Generally uh, I'm not, speaking, yeah, I'll, I'll probably yeah. be down there. I'll probably be down there in about 10 minutes. I'm not necessarily going there, but one of those buildings that you're going to pass shortly was where old baseball back in the 1800s held their first baseball convention. And that was the time when all the amateur circuits and and social clubs finally got together to establish some kind of order amongst them all and and codify, you know, uh, common ground and a common denominator as to how the game was going to, you know, be played from that moment forward. And uh, now that you're heading over into Brooklyn, uh, you know, shortly after that, uh, there's a couple of places over there that, you know, fit right in nicely with that motif uh, and and baseball from uh, the early 1850s and 60s. Did you say uh, you remember what building that was? uh... No, no, I just just know it's there off of Broome. It might be one of the four corner buildings on Broadway and Broome. But, uh, you know, I can't say for sure what it is without having to go back into my library and start looking that up. Right, exactly. I understand that. Well, uh, I am now uh, across the way from Madison Square. I'm trying to obviously be as safe as I possibly can while on my headset, just to let all of you know I'm not. I've not been biking one-handed. <laughs> of course, uh, safety first when it comes to uh, these podcasts. Yeah, uh, you know, I, this, this is certainly unprecedented. I, I had walked around plenty of times. You know, I've, um, uh, yeah, I've, I've walked uh, through Brooklyn. I've walked through uh, Upper Manhattan, as I did with you. And now I'm, uh, I'm biking through the city, which is a great way of seeing all the sights there are to see. Well, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So this is episode number 50. And uh, you and I briefly talked about that 1950 team that was ousted, of course, by the whiz kid Philadelphia Phillies, uh, one of their few good seasons in the 20th century. Um, not to rub it in, you know, considering they're, they're all right now, uh, although we can get into a uh, whole debate about what their current stand uh, is. But um, 1950 Brooklyn Dodgers, uh, Mike, just from what you have learned about them, what went wrong? What went wrong? You know, once in a while, a team comes out of nowhere and just overwhelms everyone. Not to say that they're going to ever repeat that feat again. And that's what you have, and that's why history calls them the Wiz Kids. Gee whiz. You know, where'd they come from? Because uh, the Dodgers were a pretty formidable team. Uh, Most of their players were entering their prime. 
And some of the other players, like Duke Snyder, was only 23. He was just getting established. And mm-hmm. what a strong team. And, you know, like I said, every once in a while, a team comes along, trumps all. Look at the 1990 Cincinnati Reds who, mm-hmm. who overpowered the Oakland A's, the mighty Oakland A's. It just happens. Hey, we know as Mets fans, the Mets did it in 69. A hundred wooden season, they overcame a, a, a very formidable Braves team, the Tank Aaron, and went on to roll. I mean, not just beat the Orioles. They rolled them. You know, the mighty, mighty Orioles. And, mm-hmm. you know, in just pretty dominant fashion, not for nothing. Um, with... Uh... I was just thinking about it. I just lost it briefly. Um, with the oh, the '69, the '69 uh, Cubs were managed by Leo DeRoche. Uh, yeah, Leo DeRoche. Excuse me. Yes, correct. Which uh, I always thought was ironic uh, as well uh, that that team was uh, brought down by the Mets. But um, yeah, with with 1950, if you could look that uh, that up for me uh, and, and tell me uh, some of um. Let's take a look at the schedule and and see where things might have gone a little south, uh, you know. Because I, I believe, if I remember correctly, the uh, the Philadelphia Phillies caught up to the Dodgers. Uh, yeah, I mean the Dodgers were either in first or second place uh, throughout the spring. It wasn't until very late June is when they started to slip, and, and by July you saw the Dodgers, you know, slipping down to third and fourth place in the division. Uh, they never got quite as low to slip into the second division, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, fifth place and below or below 500. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, during the dog days, uh, they rarely touched second place, if at all. It wasn't until, you know, uh, the weather started cooling off just a bit, and wouldn't you know, by late August, uh, they started creeping back into second place and they just stayed there forever. Philly would not relent. And uh, Dodgers had their chances very late in the season, but they could never quite break uh, uh, a, a three and then what became a two and then what became a, a, a one-game lead that the, the Phillies owned. And, you know, on the second of last game to the season, they were only a game out. But on, on the last game of the season, the Dodgers ultimately lost to Philadelphia four to one and, and there went the pennant. Right, exactly. Was there a um a playoff? Uh no, the uh Philadelphia Phillies one by one. They uh won the game uh, they won the division by two full games uh as a result of the loss. A a win by the Dodgers would have created the tie in a playoff. Right. Remarkable remarkable stuff. Uh, Robin Roberts defeated Don Newcomb, in fact, on that last game of the season, October 1st, 1950. Now something, something um, uh, the Wiz Kids, that also had to do with cheese Wiz, right? <laughs> uh, that fact it, it escapes me. I, I don't know <laughs> if it does. I, I'm but, sure, uh, I'm sure but that yeah, no it, it's wonderful to me that they use uh, cheese Whiz on their Philly cheesesteak sandwich. I mean, oh, it's uh, the only way how... to go. You go Whiz, whiz and onions. It's, really? It's not, you think? it's not a cheesesteak. That's what you, I think. You, you really think that's the way to go? Well, let me first uh, preface this and, and have a little bit of a, di- a digar- uh, digression uh, that I haven't eaten a cheesesteak in any shape or form since 2008. Good for you. 
Now, why why is that? Uh, well, Philadelphia Phillies winning the World Series certainly has something to do with it because there's this place. Um, I live in a hell's kitchen uh, for a good portion of my life, and there's this place down the street that's called Shorty's. And it used to be called Tony Loops, which is uh, one of the chains down in Philadelphia. And they had decided to come and open up a store here in New York. Obviously, the Tony Loops name is not really as well known. And so they eventually called it Shorty's, just being an authentic. It's the same uh, recipe as they have down there. And I ate so many cheesesteaks in 2008. And I attribute it to the reason why the Philadelphia Phillies won the World Series. <laughs> And uh, I haven't eaten a cheesesteak. I, I told myself at first, I won't eat a cheesesteak until the Mets win a World Series. Uh, but then I decided it's until the Philadelphia Phillies win another World Series. Because until then, obviously, it's working. Because they've gotten um, worse and worse every year. Let me tell you something. I have a lot of respect for superstitions like that. More power to you. Well, it's working. It seems to be working. And there was, you know, I, I got to say that I, uh, I miss my cheesesteaks. Um, they... Uh, in 2011, I was silently, you know, kind of rooting for the Phillies to out. Plus, it's the Cardinals. I mean, that's that's a that's a tough one to pick. Um, but excuse me, but um, you know, I was kind of silently rooting for the Phillies to uh, pull it out so I could finally, uh, you know, chomp down on a cheesesteak after all these years. But you know what? I still haven't. Well, let me digress even more. There used to be a place called uh, Vinny's, which was in Williamsburg on Broadway at the foot of Kent. And uh, for my money, that was the best cheesesteak in the borough, if not the city. Uh, but he closed down, you know, modernization, right. new, uh, new plans for the building. And so he left and closed down. Uh, but I missed that place. It was so good. Uh, you know, having eaten Brooklyn Philly cheesesteak, so to say, my first experience with Geno's, I was just a major disappointment. I was like, this is it? Are you kidding me? This is yeah, it? Yeah, I'm a past guy. I uh, no, I'm a past guy. If I had to be between, if I had to choose between the two, but my first experience with either or was Geno's, and I'm like, I, I can't tell you how disappointed I was. It was what a what a letdown. So uh, where else have you uh, eaten, and what, what you know, uh, in ter- not between the two, because you said if you had to choose between the two. So where in Philadelphia is the best place to eat a cheesesteak? Uh. No, unfortunately, I can't give you the address of where this place I once went, which was very good. Uh, it was uh, maybe just a, a quick mile off the Franklin Bridge. It wasn't, you know, you, you certainly didn't pass, uh, you know, Penn Square yet. It was more towards the west side of the city. But, you know, like I said, I can't remember the address. Otherwise, it's between Pat and Geno's, and I like that's better. Yeah, exactly. Um well, you know, I'm about to turn on to uh, Second Avenue from 10th Street, and uh, we have the Manhattan and uh, Brooklyn Bridge coming up. Now, don't make the decision now, but, you know, we, we can take either or back and forth because I'll be coming back uh, through Manhattan. What do you think I should take first, the Manhattan or the Brooklyn? Well, if you're going to go, you might as well take the Brooklyn and get yourself squared downtown Brooklyn. Take the Brooklyn Bridge, and, and you'll go right downtown. If you right, take so, the Manhattan uh, Bridge... Take- I'll take the I'll take Brooklyn to Brooklyn and Manhattan to Manhattan. There you go, because on the way out you can stop at Barclays Center, see the flagpole from Old Ebbets Field, and then uh-huh. continue up Flatbush and cross the Manhattan Bridge. Exactly, exactly. All right, well here I go. The lights change, and I'm going on the Second Avenue. Uh, too bad I can't video broadcast this at the same time, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know everything changed a couple of years ago. 
I'm sure I'm sure I'd uh, if I really uh, wanted to invest in that I'd probably be able to get the capabilities to uh, attach a video onto my head and broadcast that to the internet during this ride. Nowadays, that, would be, that would be pretty neat. Nowadays you need permission for everything, man. Oh, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. So where, where else do you want to digress, Mike? Uh, wherever you'd like to go, my friend. Uh, like I said before the show started, I spent the night uh, listening to uh, the Long Island Duck game that went into the 15th inning. <laughs> so how long is, you know, it's the same landmass, the Long Island Historical Society, or a.k.a. the Brooklyn Historical Society, is in uh, Brooklyn Heights, where I will be headed uh, for a brief period. Um, so... You know, tell us a little bit of the history of the Long Island Ducks. Uh, how long have they been around? Long Island Ducks are starting their 15th season in the Atlantic League. They're independent. And, you know, for us Mets fans out there, like uh, me and you, uh, you know, Bud Harrelson has been with the club since its inception. He's one of the original uh, or leading members to uh, really get the Atlantic League going as an independent circuit locally. It was his idea way back then to uh, serve uh, or to facilitate baseball in underserved markets, uh, you know, and, and really was at the forefront of all that. So, kudos to Bud Harrelson. And like I said, if you're a Met fan, you should have uh, you should have good feelings and connections with that. So, with the uh, Long Island Ducks, do you think the fact that a lot of Brooklynites moved out to Long Island had something to do with, uh, like you said, it was underserved? Uh, yeah, they're out there. Uh, they're in... Uh, in Sussex County. So, uh, yeah, they're underserved by baseball out there. For them, for some of those people, you're talking about a 70-mile drive or, or maybe a 50-mile drive to get into Queens, much less Brooklyn. So, uh, yeah, I mean... you want to go that way. Right. I mean, so you, you're better off. They're better off, you know, with their independent league. And they sell out every game. They sell out every season. Right. Attendance out there is just phenomenal. I mean, the, the, the Ducks have a very strong and solid foundation out there, and it's great. You know, where, so, is this, where is it located again? Uh, that's uh, West Islip, I believe, or Islip, Islip. Okay. But uh, for me, it's about 70 miles out. And how often do you go? I try to make at least one game a month. You know, and oh, okay, some of nice. the other Atlantic, some of the other Atlantic League teams, I try to, you know, hit it at least once. When I go to South Jersey uh, to visit with relatives or whatnot, I try to get into Camden and catch a game there. Uh, the uh, Somerset Patriots are the closest team to me. They're in they're in New Jersey, so on those spur of the moment kind of nights, uh, I'll go there for that kind of reason. Gary Carter was once manager of the Ducks. Why did he never get a shot to manage in the majors? You know what? It's funny you say that, uh, especially on the heels of Mookie Wilson's book. You're aware of that, hmm. right? Uh, and, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, and some of the things that he had to say that, you know, uh, Mets offer him no explanation for why they just uh, reduced his role from first base coach to just an ambassador and this, that, and the other. I mean, on the one hand, I think Mookie Wilson is asking a lot, and in a small sort of way, he doesn't know or understand his place. It's their team; they can handle it whichever way they want. Nobody right. knows anything, anything in this business, really. Uh, but at the same time, I get where he's coming from. I mean, the Mets shunned Gary Carter in the same way. Gary Carter wanted to manage the Mets. He really didn't have much practical experience. I get that. Nevertheless, he still paid some dues in the minor leagues, and he managed the Long Island Ducks, you know, and he gained some experience. And not for nothing, he was very successful, and every player that ever played for him 
had nothing but great things to say about him and his capabilities uh, of managing and handling the team. So, Tim, if you take a look at the relationships between the current Mets ownership and, and former players, Not almost everyone you can almost point to is, is Rocky or, or, you know, uh, stale at best. We went over recently how the Mets and Ron Hunt basically severed ties. We have this situation with Mookie Wilson. We're bringing up Gary Carter now and how the Mets shunned him. Uh, you know, it was right around the time I think Jerry Manuel was still managing the Mets, right? Or was it Willie Randolph who was still managing? I think Willie managing? Randolph when, when Gary Carter said something. Okay, so there you go. Yeah, you're right. It was Willie Randolph because everyone made a big hoopla saying, oh, well, he's talking about somebody else's job there. Well, whatever, you know, <laughs> whatever. Uh, some people, you know, they just work in what's their best interest, you know what I mean? And right. Gary Carter had absolutely nothing to do, nothing to lose by taking that back. But it backfired him. I mean, but you, I mean, it's amazing that Gary Carter, I mean, not, excuse me, not Gary Carter, uh, Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling still continue to maintain the relationship they do with the club, considering that uh, a far more majority of them have contentious relationships with the club. Well, you know, having it, it, having the story come up, it, it just, it's just a constantly a reminder that there, there's, there's just a level of communication that the, the Mets seem to be uh, poor at when it comes, you know, whether it's just communication, uh, you know, they might not run the team tyrannically like uh, James Dolan does, but uh, there seems to be uh, a level of disconnect, and also uh, they seem to offend people. Yeah, I hear that. I, and, you know, word around the radio waves is that the Mets uh, intentionally try to, you know, stay away from that 80s team that was perhaps a bit too rowdy and a bit too raucous for their tastes, and they don't want things like that or behavior like that polluting their current team. Whatever. Yeah, you know, I mean, I might not agree with it. Uh, uh, you know, Kerry Collins, I have uh, many issues with him when it comes to his on-field management. I right. think he's a really great motivator, and uh, especially even hearing last night what he had to say after the walk-off win uh, by Curtis Granderson, what he had to say about that whole 90-win thing, uh, I think he took the correct approach when he said that, you know, you're going to have to grind it out every night, but it is possible to win 90 games, uh, all, you know, as you guys, as, as this roster, you know. Well, to his credit, I think he, he, he unifies a locker room well. You know, I think by and large, everyone's on the same page of music, and, and they all respond to his dictates. But as you and I know, we have issues with his strategy. But we're not here to talk about the Mets, per se. No, no. Mets refers to, but it's, uh, always, you know, it's always part of the legacy of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And exactly. I, I, will, I, will, I will transfer it uh, this way to the, uh, the modern-day Dodgers. And, I, while, and while Los Angeles is certainly not Brooklyn, and that team is certainly not the team, that played in Brooklyn. It is still the same franchise. They have a great jersey uh, on their chest. Uh, and last night they played in the rain till the 11th inning, unfortunately, for, uh, for the Dodgers, losing to uh, the Rockies in 11 innings by a score of 5-2. to two. But it was fun to see uh, the Dodgers in the rain because that never happens in Los Angeles. Well, uh, this, is, this is true. You know, what, what, what's that? Are you familiar with that old song? It never rains in California. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I call them that's the uh, the love child of the Giants and the Dodgers. Right, exactly. 
No, they had one drunken night where they shouldn't have been in bed together, and and Alex pops the mess. There you go. <laughs> yeah, they woke up and were like, "How'd you get in the bed with, with us?" But um, the Giants won last night. Speaking of the Giants, maybe we can go off on that tangent as I approach the Brooklyn Bridge uh, briefly. Um, I always like to talk about the level of fandom amongst the uh, the Giants faithful, and how a lot more. And I think it has to do with the way Walter O'Malley offended an entire population of people. Uh, I, I think they've stuck with their giant team, and I think Willie Mays had something to do with it, but it just seems that uh, the level of passion uh, amongst Giants fans who uh, used to root for the New York Giants uh, seemed to carry over to San Francisco in, uh, in, in many situations. Well, this is what I learned in my personal experiences from guys who were either Giant fans or their sons of Giants fans. And whereas the Dodgers, once they left and the Mets came about, most of those Dodgers uh, Dodgers fans clung to the Mets. Uh, Giants fans, on the other hand, uh, didn't, didn't, uh, you know, didn't necessarily take in the, the Mets to their bosoms, perhaps, the way former Dodgers fans did. If anything, Giants fans no longer, and like I said, this is just from my experience, from anecdotes that I've heard over the years, Giants fans just remained without a team. They neither jumped to the Yankees, and they neither jumped to the Mets. They just lived out life happily ever after. Now, I find that in northern Manhattan in particular, there's a lot of Giants fans still roaming those streets. Right. And they don't really like to talk about it much. Now, a friend of mine, his pop was a, a Giants fan, and he clued me into a lot of these insights that if you go up to Washington Heights and Idlewood and up there, uh, uh, or not, uh, Inwood and, and, and whatnot, that, mm. yeah, there's a lot of them still roaming around, uh, and they all recall those days fondly, but it doesn't go beyond that. They never really uh, were inspired to jump on the Mets. They never jumped to the Yankees, and they just existed without a team. It's funny how the two... Uh, fan bases uh, differed in that respect. I think both the Dodgers and the Giants broadcasted uh, for a, a, quite a while in the New York area after they left. Maybe not quite a while, but, but definitely a few years. Mm. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, I, I, mean, I think definitely the Giants, the Dodgers might not have as much. Um, but, you know, they were able to pick it up. Uh, Gary Mintz, who uh, head of the New York Giants Preservation Society, which has been on this podcast a number of times. Uh, he talks about picking up uh, the feed out in Long Island when he was a kid. Uh, you know, the Giants, the Giants feed, uh, the San Francisco Giants feed. And, um, you know, sorry, I'm having some uh, some issues with people who don't know how to drive in New York City right now, but uh, <laughs> there's a lot of that. <laughs> well, somebody's honking at him to take, a, take a, a right on a red light, and it's just like, listen, Learn the rules. I mean, there I, there are signs when they first come in, but nobody, not everybody always, of course, picked up on it. But, you know, I, I get most everywhere you can take a, take a right on red. And in New York City, the uh, five boroughs, you can't generally, unless it says that you're, you're allowed to. That is correct. It's a jungle out there. <laughs> well, right now uh, I am looking at the Transfiguration School which used to be the Hall of St. James School at the corner of James Street. And hold on. Let's see. I really have no idea. There's no other sign that says uh, what street I'm on. 
What street am I on, sir? What street is this? This one right here. St. James. So St. James and James Street. There you go. <laughs> At the corner of St. James. It was that simple, Mike. <laughs> well, you know what? That's a lesson learned for everybody out there. That took less time to do than Googling it now, didn't it? Just ask people. <laughs> Nobody talks to each other anymore. There was a construction worker waving uh, uh, the orange flag on, and uh, one side of the street was closed, so he had to uh, navigate a two-way street. And um, now I'm on Madison Street. I, I'm looking at the overpass for the Brooklyn Bridge, so we got to head over to to the front of it. Uh, I took a wacky way to the to the bridge. I passed the Manhattan. I went down Second Avenue to the Bowery, of course, uh, or not the Bowery. Uh, um, I guess it is Second Avenue, and then the Bowery is also leads to it, but doesn't lead directly to the uh, the bike path. Um, but obviously, I'm going to the Brooklyn Bridge first, so uh, you know, at the behest of uh, Mike Lacolon. Uh, and because it does make sense, you, you you know, Brooklyn Bridge opened up a gateway to Brooklyn for many, many people. Oh, forget about it. Well, that's why the neighborhood of Brooklyn Heights is considered the first suburb of America. Mm-hmm. Because with the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, yeah, that became the first immediate settlement outside of an urban environment. That well, people there it flocked, is. That people flocked away from the city for, you know. So there I'm you go. There's a little right bit now. Of... I'm, I'm passing under it as we speak um, on on St. James Street. And uh, right when you started to talk about it, I, I opened up and uh, into where uh, the view for it was. And um, hold on for a second. Well, I was going to say also is that I meant to bring my camera with me to document this journey because I thought that would, would have been a... Uh, uh, you know, a nice companion, but unfortunately, in my haste out of the uh, the apartment, I forgot my my neat camera and my phone camera. It really does, is not going to capture it as well. So this will just I'm just going to have to leave this up to uh, the imagination, Mike, as I, if, uh, <laughs> for people to follow along inside their heads. I, I hate when that happens, but hey, memories last forever. Exactly, exactly, or until you die, at least, right? No, I'm kidding. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, we can get into that, but you know, hey, whatever. Yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't need to go that deep right now. Uh, all we, all we got to do is explore not only this time, uh, but the uh, the times that have uh, led up to this moment to to make uh, you know to give context to everything uh, ahead. You know, so, but that's to, that's to say we don't discriminate against metaphysics metaphysics out there. Right. <laughs> All right. So City Hall uh, in front of me. I see the Woolworth Building. Uh, I'm passing Pace University right now. And how's the breathing? Is is it a little too heavy? Uh, no, it's fine. Okay. Good. Good. So uh, sounds like this uh, the sound is uh, rather good. I need to probably bring this up onto the sidewalk for a second, as I don't want to get hit. No All right. So well, no. I'm guessing, you know, in your uh, being a Brooklyn aficionado, you've done plenty of reading on the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, if you want to uh, give us a little, little bit about uh, what are some of the, your, your favorite anecdotes regarding the bridge. Uh, my first would be, you know, its 100th year birthday in 1983 uh, because uh, the fireworks show was just, you know, crazy. Uh, but... It, that, that's to say it was built in, what, 1883, I believe, a uh, roving company. And they said that the steel he was using for the cables was inferior of inferior quality. 
what we know, what we now know about the bridge is that it was just extraordinarily overbuilt, and obviously we see that with you know modern designs and techniques. Uh, it really is. It's in fact gorgeous, and uh, at any time of day or night, it's just a, such a sight to behold. And, what I uh, love about the contrast of the Brooklyn Bridge to the Manhattan Bridge, especially when you have the Brooklyn in, in the foreground and the Manhattan in the background, on you, you know in a in a shot. Uh, I love it. It kind of represents two separate uh, two separate eras of the Industrial Revolution. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, early and you know post really uh, and, and the big investments in steel. Yeah, you're right about that. I mean, you know, obviously there was plenty of steel used in the Brooklyn Bridge, but it still is more of a connection to the olden days where everything is built with stone. You know, I, I love it, the gothic look to it, the stonework. You know, uh, it's just, it's, it's timeless. And I, I got I to gotta say about the American flag, I, I, I might have mentioned it on here. I know I mentioned it somewhere else, uh, probably on the, the Rising Alpha Report. It was, it was just in conversation. That uh, the American flag, while I think it's it's really for to me, you know, the most aesthetically pleasing flag, which is apparently the word of the day, aesthetic. Uh, it's because of the way the stripes move when the wind is blowing. It is made to flap, and it's yeah. really, really a beautiful, beautiful thing. And the reason I bring it up is because both of the uh, the pillars of the Brooklyn Bridge have the flag on top of it, of course, uh, and I, I think. That you know, a big symbol. That that is the Brooklyn Bridge is uh, a huge part of American history and what America stands for. And uh, you know, I'm I'm getting rather patriotic uh, in in this moment, especially as I I bike through a sea of of, of uh, you know global folk. Uh, it's uh, it's quite a sight to be to behold. Well, there you go. Proud to be an American, and and you true. It's true. You said it so right. A waving flag, you know, it was almost meant to do that, and and it's so fluid and beautiful, and you're absolutely right about that. I mean, it's as natural as perhaps crashing waves on a beach. Right, exactly. All right, well, this is going to be a little difficult on a Saturday. Uh, for those of you who have not either have not been to the Brooklyn Bridge in a while or have never been to the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, the walkway is separated by a line with... Uh, <laughs> separated by a line to the left. Uh, the left side is the bikers, and the right side is the pedestrians. It's really, it's really, it's really difficult on a, on a Saturday because there's so many people. Excuse me. And uh, some some bikers don't take to it well. <laughs> uh, you know, there's been a lot of fights on that bridge over who's in whose lane. Well, you know what though? I mean, first of all, it's New York City. You, uh, as far as I'm concerned, you operate within its parameters. <laughs> and on a Saturday. You know, it's the most famous bridge in the world, you could argue. It's going to be crowded. It certainly is, now that the weather's turning nice. Oh, yeah. But even on, even in the winter, I mean, people want to see this bridge. And, and you know, the winter, uh, especially around holidays, is a huge, uh, huge tourist time for uh, for New York. Let me tell you something. I, I've been in Europe. Uh, I've been to South America. Uh, I've been to Asia. And I've been around this country. There is no visual like downtown Manhattan with the Brooklyn Bridge, for my money. It's still number one. I agree. I agree. Uh, you know, I'm not about to. I'm not about to yell at anybody right now. I'm not about to ring the bell. 
Uh, I'm just going to work around it, especially because I'm on the podcast. That's going to be annoying to everybody. <laughs> uh, I like to whistle uh, myself. I like to blow the whistle. Honestly, when I'm on a podcast, I just go, hey. <laughs> because I got I got that kind of voice. So um, It's not supposed to rain today, is it? As far as I understand, all the rain came last night. Yeah, it did start pouring. And uh, the no, night. the day is actually supposed to be a little bit better than, it's, uh, than it presently is. Great. Because I'm seeing some, it's not exactly dark clouds, but it's certainly darker to the south of us right now, looking towards uh, downtown New York, towards the financial district. And now, obviously, as I bike up the, uh, bike up to the first pillar, uh, clearly my breath is going to get a little more. Hold on. Excuse me. Excuse me. Thank you. Can you, sorry, can you, um... Mike, can you hear that British man behind me? Uh, no, I did not. Uh, he just keeps going, you're on a bike lane, everybody. You're on a bike lane. <laughs> well, good for him. At least he's, uh, he's heads up. Hey, yeah, exactly. So, I can't hey. stand the, I, I'll tell you, I can't stand the dang bell. That's just me. Not for nothing. I mean, let's face it. In London, you can't do anything without being noticed on camera. So uh, they adhere to the rules well. Right. Right, exactly. Well... I'm coming up to the first one, 1875 at the top. The visual of the of the uh, the crossing steel steel uh, uh, ropes are just a sight to behold, man. Now, now, if you can, you know, picture in your mind the trolleys that used to go yeah. over the Brooklyn Bridge. Exactly. Hold on for a second. Big wall of people. Heads up. You know, it's character building for some of these teenagers to get swiped a little bit. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, it toughens up the skin. Absolutely. Well, I'm uh, now, I, I've ascended to the first pillar. Now uh, the middle, if you're familiar with the bridge, you, you ascend the whole part that is, that is very, uh, has some great views of the city where people take some photos. And then you go back down briefly until you have to come back up to the middle. Uh, and then once you get to the middle, it's, it's all dissension from there into Brooklyn. And that's always, I like, you know, basically shooting out like a gun into Brooklyn on the bike. There you go. Fly like the wind, my friend. Well, we got the, uh, we are now basically in the middle, and you see the skyline of Brooklyn Heights. You were talking about Brooklyn Heights being the uh, first suburb. Um, how early does that date back? Does that date back before uh, the bridge, when uh, they were taking ferries across? Uh, well, you know, there was a ferry, uh, the Fulton Ferry Service, people to and from Brooklyn into Lower Manhattan, and that's what started the, uh, the settlements in Brooklyn from Manhattan. But when they built the bridge in, in 1883, that really got everything started in earnest. So the great majority uh, of uh, of the neighborhood, you know, is post-Civil War, but certainly uh, a lot of it got its start. Uh, there's a lot of churches there uh, oh, yeah. of various denominations that uh, all got their start back in the 1850s and stuff. So, uh, no, but certainly the uh, the Brooklyn Bridge hastens everything, but the ferry accommodated the, early, the more earliest settlers. 
So here's my question about uh, the Brooklyn Promenade. Um, I, you know, there's, I'm certain that I've read about it before. Uh, there's a possibility we could have talked about it with somebody else on the podcast. But my question about this, the, the Brooklyn Queens Expressway under the promenade and, and uh, what, the, what you know about the engineering of that. What is, what, how was that developed for the highway and, and, you know, and trying to keep as much of the promenade intact as, as uh, it had been? Well, I'll, I'll speak specifically of the promenade first and then get into the wider disaster that, that was Robert Moses uh, that goes far beyond his treatment of the Dodgers. Right. If anything, you know, if you're up above and you're in the neighborhood and you walk out onto the promenade, obviously, uh, touche, what a great touch. It's a beautiful place to be, you know, and one of the, again, I'll reiterate, one of the most picturesque places on the planet. You know, now if we're going to get more, more rudimentary about things and, and speak of the Brooklyn Queens Expressway itself, you know, that goes back to Robert Moses' grand design for, for, you know, inaugurating the age of the automobile. And, and what he did was effectively destroy, I mean, destroy neighborhoods literally, you know, from the shores of, of southern Brooklyn all through and in, in Queens and Long Island and throughout this island and then invariably through Manhattan, Queens, Bronx, all this architecture, all this highway, all these parkways were his grand design. Yep. And, and oh, uh, I mean, it, and the, the obscene part of it is just he was so aloof, and there was no speaking to the man. And and even more exponentially obscene was the power invested in him. There was no check or balance to him. He did whatever he pleased. I'm not saying he he was irresponsible, but uh, the failure to incorporate other ideas and have that check and balance, and, and just leave this man undeterred to explore his own whim, I think those are dangerous things. And and look at the disaster that we're trying to correct nowadays with, with the reinvention of major portions of, of this highway network that we have. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the so, Galanis Expressway has been under construction for the entire my, time. It's, my it's, entire it's, lifetime. My entire lifetime. You know, nothing but perhaps in Brooklyn, more so than Manhattan because it's an impossibility in Manhattan. But maybe well, when he Brooklyn, tried to when he tried to get to Manhattan, it was the '60s and it was the protest there. Yeah. And so and so when he, I mean, what you what you hear about it was that he wanted to put highways coming from the tunnels in downtown and midtown across to to Brooklyn and, and Queens. And yeah. uh, he, you know, he literally wanted to to get rid of what we know as Soho, uh, you know, a, a section of Soho, a section of the West Village, a section of Greenwich Village. And well, uh, I, forget, I, I forget her name, but there was this one woman who lived in the village that uh, would have none of it. Isn't that, really the troops. Yeah, isn't that the same exact thing that happened to the neighborhood that was replaced with the original trade center complex? Yep. Yeah, there you go. But uh, Robert Moses, man, what a disaster. And so the part of the promenade where he stacks the roadways uh, in a layer of three, uh, you know, I, I, I've seen old pictures of the old waterfront and, and Furman Street and, and things of that. So, uh, I mean, his intention was to bypass 
uh, that portion of Brooklyn Heights because he had created enough damage, I guess, that the outcry was just too much in, in reference to what he did to Tower Gardens, you know, starting in Red Hook all the way on up, all the way through Atlantic Avenue. I mean, he, he just destroyed two neighborhoods, not to mention Sunset Park and, and, and Bay Ridge, and, you know, he was just leaving a path of destruction behind. Well, he, he was uh, a very controversial figure, and uh, we could go on and on about Ralph Moses, and we, we certainly will. But we have to pause right now because I'm currently looking at the New York City College of Technology and the U.S. Post Office on the other side of the Brooklyn Bridge, and uh, I implore you to direct me as to where I should go next, Mike. All right. Uh, you know what? Continue going straight. And uh, make a, okay. Yeah, okay. continue going straight and make a stop at Livingston Street. Okay, so we're going to keep going on what becomes Adams Street is what you're telling me. Correct. Continue along right. Adams Street. And the, the, uh, the post office is on your right. And by the way, isn't it a beautiful post office? Oh, yeah, When they don't always have the scaffolding up, that is. Well, it looks like uh, whatever they were correcting and, and restoring has been restored because it looks pristine. Well, I can assure you within two weeks from now, the scaffolding will be right up because that's up for perpetuity. We're going to have to do this uh, for the month that, that we have this, uh, the longer show. We're going to have to do a bunch of these, uh, these tours. <laughs> now, uh, on Adams Street towards the right, or on the right side of the street, uh, you're going to come up to the, the, uh, the Brooklyn, or I should say the New York City Transit oh. Museum. Where, where, uh, where exactly again? Uh, that's on uh, Skimmerhorn. Skimmerhorn and, and Adams is the entrance. Uh, the other side of it is on Court Street and Skimmerhorn. So okay. uh, pay attention to the signs while you're on Adams Street, and when you come up to Skimmerhorn. So here's my question for you, speaking of transit. Have they destroyed basically every car that was ever graffitied on? Do you think... Because as far as I'm concerned, those should be in urban museums or the transit museum. But I don't think MTA, considering it is defamation of their property, technically, uh, they would ever have embraced that era of transit. Within the last year, I became aware of a place that did have cars that preserved graffiti. That's the best I can say. Uh, having gone to the uh, transit museum right there in downtown Brooklyn uh, maybe two years ago, I believe they have a car with all the graffiti on the inside. Okay, okay. With all, they have a car that has the graffiti on the inside. Yeah. Uh, as far as the outside, perhaps not, because uh, back in the day, you know, you were specifically looking at tags and, and people in competition with each other, and I'm not sure if the MPA wanted to give you, you know, their proper props nowadays that we would otherwise. Well, I mean, I got a book called The uh, Subway Art, and obviously a, a good chunk of it were in the rail yards of the Bronx uh, back in the day. But there was, I mean, like, these are some of the things that I've seen on these cars. I, I personally put them up there with some of the greatest artwork, of, you know, to, to, that humans have ever done. I, I, couldn't agree with you. I couldn't agree with you more. As a matter of fact, uh, I put a lot of graffiti on the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger. Uh, wherever I yeah. see a nice mural, you know, I'll, I'll, photo, I'll, I'll take photos of it and... I'll post them, and wherever possible, I'll uh, email the person because a lot of them leave their information on the wall somewhere. You just got to look for it. Now, with five points, with five points over, uh, I got to give credit where credit's due. Um, and for those of you that don't know, Five Points Graffiti Art Center 
uh, in Long Island City, Queens, uh, had the entire building graffitied over where uh, people from uh, graffiti artists from all over the world would come and practice. And uh, that is currently that is, that is uh, slated for uh, destruction, and uh, they're going to make it into a high rise. There was a long battle. But uh, the owner finally won out, and you know it's his right to do whatever he wants with the buildings. I personally think they should have um, they should have gone the direction of nas- national landmark of historic places. I don't think that you know as much as I am into history and as much as we talk about history on here, I think that you got to get well ahead of this uh, before you, you know it, it, you shouldn't just be considering all the uh, the pre-war uh, and and farther you know even pre-pre-war. <laughs> buildings uh, as uh, the things that you should be uh, protecting. You should be considered. I mean, I, as far as I was concerned, Five Points was a cultural landmark, and it should have been uh, preserved. But what are you going to do? It's uh, the way of the world. But well, um, ha- having said that about Five Points, Williamsburg, i got to get credit with Oh, yeah, absolutely. Williamsburg, and not for nothing, Bushwick as well. Right. You know, what What, what doesn't fit into Williamsburg anymore is, is <laughs> steadily bleeding into Bushwick. Yeah, well said, you know, for better or worse, right? Right. All right, so I am Shemmerhorn, Shemmerhorn, I think. Well, how do you pronounce it? Because I don't think I've ever pronounced it the way you did. Skimmerhorn. Uh, some, people, some people say Skimmerhorn, 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 you know, Skimmerhorn. Well, that's where I am. So what, what, right. where am I looking for? I'm on Adams right. and Skimmerhorn. You're on Adams and Skimmerhorn. Do you see what looks like a subway stop on the corner? Hold on. Um, the, I see the Religious Society of Friends, the old Quaker building. Um, it should the be... The Brooklyn, Brooklyn Civic Center. I, I, oh, there it is. Yeah, yeah, the New York Transit Museum. There it is. There you go. Now, if you go down there one day, uh, it's an old subway stop. Oh, and it has, wow. uh, it has period trains down there, transit history. It has trolleys down there. And uh, it's, a, it's a nice place, man, and it's very cheap, by the way. So wait a second. Um, is the transit museum this? That's the main transit museum, right? Yes, it is. Oh, and I, you know, I, I don't think I ever knew, and it makes perfect sense. And you know, uh, you know, applaud them for doing so. That the transit museum is an old subway stop. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, that's I'm, what the museum is. Like, oh, it's, it's this big building. No, it's it's right down there. And it is functional, by the way. Uh, every year they roll out the antique cars and let them go through, pass through the system in Brooklyn. I think they make a stop in Wall Street. Don't quote me on that one. Uh, but they do run the antique trains through and out of the station, you know, for occasions uh, once a year, I believe. All right. So you directed me to the Transit Museum. Now uh, I'm coming up to Atlantic Avenue. Where next? Uh, oh, you're at Atlantic Avenue right now? At Atlantic and Adams, yeah. Okay. So I would have you uh, bear right and head towards the water. All right. Cool. Okay. Because what I want you to do is go back up Clinton Street and go to Livingston. Okay. Sounds All right. great. Definitely. And then we'll take the Manhattan from there. Oh, I guess we gotta I guess we gotta hit up the flagpole. I guess we do need to go to Atlantic and Flatbush because it has so much to do with Brooklyn Sports history. Okay, well but being that you're close by, you need to stop at two spots which is just a block away from each other in downtown Brooklyn, which is where you're headed now, and then from there, yeah, you can shoot straight down Atlantic Avenue and head towards Barclay Center. So I'm getting to Court and, and Atlantic right now. And okay. uh, let's, see, uh, let's see, the South Brooklyn Savings Institution, which is now a Trader Joe's. Doesn't that, that say is, it all? <laughs> that is correct. Uh, you know, 
Uh, I mean, uh, you, you got to, yeah, you got to give it credit where credit's due, which is another phrase of the of the day, uh, that it, 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 it's certainly creative way of using a space that obviously, you know, as the century went on, all the banks got bought out by bigger banks and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, I'll also have you know something about that building that on the court alley or on the court street side of that building, that's one of the markers of uh, George Washington's stay here in Brooklyn during the Battle of what you know some people call Long Island or the Battle of Brooklyn back in the Revolutionary War. So that was one of his pit stops and locations uh, for his forces here in Brooklyn. Well, yep, I saw that. Uh, that is that was uh, a very nice plaque indeed. Um, Atlantic Avenue, is just, it's quite the, uh, the center. It's quite uh, the street. You know, Atlantic Avenue is, is altogether a time capsule. It's beautiful. It's altogether modern also. It's diverse. It's forever changing. And, you know, uh, from the water, it links uh, the very ancient past of this borough to its brand-new Barclay Center, you know, and beyond. Coming up on the water, I see it uh, before the hill goes down. I really should replace the bike. I tried to replace the bike on 2nd Avenue, and I forgot that I, I didn't. Uh, okay. I came into Brooklyn. I got so distracted with Brooklyn. Don't forget, uh, don't forget you're taking a right on Clinton. So when yeah, you see the I'm supermarket on, on your right. On, I'm coming up on Henry right now. Okay, so the next one is Clinton. When you see the supermarket, you're going to take a right. Interesting bar at the corner of Henry Atlantic called Long Island Restaurant that looks closed, but it's uh, some old neon that uh, must look pretty cool and lit up. And, and it does. Uh, I believe uh, the owners of that establishment have been here a long time, maybe 35 years or so. But if I'm not mistaken, uh, they are finally giving up the property and, like everything else, you know, a new, a new uh, future awaits that building. Well, hopefully uh, the neon is included in whatever plans anybody has, but, you know, that's out of our hands, right? I certainly hope, you know, they have uh, good, well-intentioned plans, but you're right, it is out of our hands. Uh, well, I'm, so at, please... I'm at Hicks in Atlantic now. You're at Hicks in Atlantic. All right, Did I right. too you, far? You sure you didn't pass Clinton? No, I might have passed Clinton. I think Clinton might have been before Henry. That's a possibility. I got to turn, turn around. around. Yeah, turn uh, around. You went too far. All right. Yeah, if you're at Hicks and Henry, you definitely went too far. Uh, Clinton is before Henry. Okay. So when you hit Clinton, take a left. The Roebling Inn, that looks like a, must be a nice pub. Never went in there. It looks new. It, you know, the paint job's rather rather new. Uh, there's, a, there's a stretch of uh, Atlantic Avenue that's, you know, uh, uniquely... Islamic, uh, you know, and everyone pretty much shares a spot on, on, on Atlantic Avenue. And every year they have uh, the street fair, which draws huge crowds. And mm-hmm. uh, it's very diverse and, <laughs> shall I say, very flavorful. It is the most populated borough of New York. This is the most populated borough of New York, correct. 2.6 million people. All right, Clinton Street. All right. I Take guess left. that... Uh... I, I'm not sure why I passed. Maybe it was the Keyswood that drove me away. I don't know. Take a left and uh, go to Livingston. When you hit Clinton and Livingston, you'll know because it's a T intersection. Okay. All right. And then uh, I'm going to direct you to a particular house right on the corner. All right. 
And then from there, you'll just be one block away from uh, the location where it's a new building these days, but where the location of the Brooklyn Dodgers is, Brooklyn Dodgers offices used to be. Yes, 215 Mondays. And uh, they have a, a, a plaque. Oh, I, you know, if you can, just so you're not looking like uh, some nut, you know, pressed with his face pressed up against the window, maybe you can walk your bike, your your bike inside the bank because there's a beautiful mural on the wall of uh, Ebbets Field. You know, I but, thought you're talking about you're talking about the Chase Bank that used to be the Brooklyn uh, the Brooklyn Trust Company. I'm talking about the bank right on the corner across from Borough Hall. Oh, you're, the, talk, you're talking about what is now the TD Bank that is now. That is uh, correct. That's right. That is correct. There's a plaque outside the bank on the sidewalk at sidewalk level uh, that signifies Jackie Robinson signing. But mm-hmm. the, on the inside of the bank itself, there's a big giant mural of uh, the inside of Ebbets Field. You know, what I can probably do is park the bike at it, since I actually turn into a city bike uh, uh, depot anyway, uh, and and then just go inside. Well, I mean, you can see it very, very nicely from, from outside through the window. Okay, great. Oh, here's, yeah. here's one. I'm coming up, so I'm at Livingston and Clinton. All right, there's, so you're, there's one. There's one on the sidewalk, so I'm going to go right, drop so this you're off. Right, so then... you're at the T intersection now. There's a uh, let's call it a brownstone on the corner, and there's a church right across the street, right? Yes. Go to the house. It's got it's okay. got the uh, bamboo shoots in the front, right? Hold on, hold on. I, I can't tell right now. Oh, uh, this might be full. You'd, be, you'd think that they wouldn't be full. Well, some of them what? they're not full, but uh, they're city bike things. Where are you? You're at Livingston and Port? Yeah, across the way from the church is a city bike depot, so i got to drop this Wait, off. no, are you at Livingston and Port or Livingston and Clinton? No, I'm I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm going on foot for a bit, Mike. Oh, okay, all right. Um, all right, so right now I'm at Clinton and Livingston. On one side is uh, Aitken Place, and on the other side is Livingston Place. Where am I turning on? Uh, Livingston Place, right on the corner of Livingston Place. Okay, so the, a, church is, the church is on the corner. Right, and right across and, the street from the church is a house on the corner. Yeah, it's it's uh, the the um, the cement black uh, black trimmed house, is, are you talking about? I believe so. Certainly hope you're at the right place. Now, it says, look it, at it the... It says 1854. It's right across the, the way on uh, look at, Clinton look at the Look at the front of the house if you're standing on Clinton. Okay. Do you see a plaque behind? At the time, the last place, I, the last time I saw it, he had like bamboo shoots coming up. But do you see a plaque affixed to the front of the house? A bronze plaque? No, I don't. I think we're. Uh, it's at the corner of Eighth uh, and Clinton. You know what? No, no, no. Hold on, hold on. No, no. I see. On Livingston. On Livingston. You, you might have said that, and I just wasn't listening hard enough, of course. Let me it's see. The it. corner of Livingston and Clinton. Yeah, to the left, you know, if I'm looking north, to the right is Livingston. Okay, so I'm standing on the corner. Of a brick um, house? Yeah, I'm looking at the brick house right now. All right, I see the plaque. There it is. And now, go ahead. Try to, read to... Up, try to read right. that plaque as best you can. 133 Clinton Street. This house was the former home of the Brooklyn Excelsiors, baseball champions of the United States in 1860. Constructed in 1851, the building was once the Jolly Young Bachelors Clubhouse. The Bachelors evolved into the Excelsior's baseball team. One of its pitchers, James Crichton, 307 Henry Street, Brooklyn, is said to have tossed the first curveball. 
During the Civil War, the Excelsior introduced the game to soldiers from various states. Because of its popularity, similar teams were established in other cities. Thus, baseball as a national sport can be considered as having its origins in, uh, in Brooklyn. Plaque provided by the New York Community Trust in 1974. So this was the, the former home. So this was where uh, they basically just gathered uh, to discuss and, and uh, discuss some baseball. Yeah, as they would call it back then, that would have been their social club. They exactly. evolved, I guess, into uh, one of the first clubhouses. And as we said, obviously, since it was uh, one of the first suburbs, uh, Brooklyn Heights was built up, uh, was urbanized a lot sooner than many, many places in Brooklyn. All right, now, if you remember when you were on Atlantic Avenue and Henry Street. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's it's in 333 Henry Street was James Crichton's place. Right, you were just one block away from that residence. Just one block. Uh, yeah, when you were when you were at Atlantic Avenue and Henry Street on your way back to Clinton, mm-hmm. uh, that house was just one block off of Atlantic uh, Atlantic Avenue on Henry Street. It's certainly a shame that I didn't bring my uh, my camera, but uh, you know, just you live, you learn, and I'll bring it next time. We can really uh, have a companion piece of these uh, these touring broadcasts. We'll do as the weather gets better. Well, you're more than welcome to lift the pictures off of the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger blogspot dot com. That's <laughs> the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger dot blogspot dot com. <laughs> exactly. All right, so I'm going to walk to 307 Henry Street. I just want to take a look at it. Uh, it really is. It's, it's a fascinating place. It's, it's really beautiful. Um, I wish I could afford to live here. <laughs> Well, before you go there, you might want to go to the bank first because that's only a block away. Uh, the one well, on Henry Street, you'd need to get all the way back to Atlantic Avenue for. Why? To go the other way? Yeah. So okay. take the one block up and go to the bank first to check out the Jackie Robinson and the mural just heading down back towards uh, Henry Street if you want. But I'll be honest with you, the house itself, there's no placard there. There's nothing signifying it other than what you already read. Other than what you already read and the fact that it's probably a pretty good-looking building. Right. All you're going to do is just confirm the address. All right. And, and you know, I'm not here to criticize anybody, but uh, the building where the plaque is is a finer <laughs> uh, building than the one on Henry Street. <laughs> All right, then. Hold on. Coming up to Jerolamon. Everybody, you know, anybody coming into New York City um, really should put it into their agenda to take a look at Brooklyn. And uh, I guess Brooklyn Heights is probably a, a much-visited area because of the promenade and because it's right across the street. from the, It's right on the other side of the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, I, I, but, you know, people really need to remember to do this when they come to New York. I've I got to be honest with you. I mean, this place is so big and varied that you really need to spend one day in each neighborhood. Yeah, that's very true. So wait a second. Which Montague is actually a couple. Okay, I see it. I see. Because yeah, I see the building. To, there's the building yeah, at the head corner. Back towards, just head back towards uh, Borough Hall. Now and, I'm uh, doing it on foot, so it's going to be a little uh, longer right. than uh, Advent. And on Montague and Court Street, you'll uh, see the building right on the corner. Now the Brooklyn Trust Company. Uh, was, you know, headquartered at the corner here of uh, Montague and Clinton uh, in this, you know, another grand building, much like that Trader Joe's building we were talking about. It's now a chase, so it's still uh, a bank in some regards, and I'm sure it's really 
I haven't been in it. I'm sure it's uh, absolutely astounding inside. Uh, uh, that's, you know, the Broken Trust Company, uh, you could argue, is the reason why the Dodgers, uh, you, you could argue in some regards, was the reason why the Dodgers were able to, to get out of their uh, their funk at the end of the 30s because they gave a lot of money to let them fail. <laughs> yeah, they sure did. <laughs> now, those, those three blocks, I believe it's a three-block area, uh, have finally won landmark status. Including this uh, this Chase building? Yeah, I believe in, including that that block. If well, I'm you know, a block, a block away from that, really, I mean, the uh, the bank takes up the entire block going towards um, uh, uh, Airpont Street. Yeah, where the, uh, the, block, the Historical Society is. Well, those are already historical. Uh, but right. uh, the blocks right across from uh, Borough Hall which would be Montague, Remsen, and uh, the next one after that. Those those three blocks were never designated before, and they finally won landmark status. All right. Well, walking on Montague now, uh, coming up to 215 Montague, where the TD Bank is. Right. Uh, um, you know, you, you kind of briefly saw it in the movie 42, where they, they uh, manipulated the corner. Um, and uh, it looks like it, it was a, a good-looking building that 215 Montague Street uh, used to be. I don't think uh, the address does the address even work uh, uh, exist anymore. That's a good question, man. They uh, they changed things over there, but uh, exactly. you know, nevertheless, the, the neighborhood is still a nice time capsule. Yeah, I mean, the majority of the buildings are not post-war here, uh, but but certainly you can tell where they something must have uh, must have given. Either either it wasn't structurally sound anymore and they decided to, to tear it down or they just decided, as they did then, to tear yeah. things down. There, there was a, a lot of neglect. There was no really, there was no sense of history back in the 60s and 70s. It was all uh, about the anything, You know, if anything, uh, everything was more in a state of decay and things got to a point where you had no choice but to knock some things down. Uh, exactly. Um, but, so this is 2.05. Maybe on this other side, is there an entrance? So this might be 215. It might give this 215 status, the front of Teeny Bank. It's hard to, I can't find uh, anywhere that it has the address. The other, around the corner, it says 205, but the building's big enough. And so in here, they have a big mural of, of Evans Field, huh? Oh, there it is. Yeah, that's quite, that's quite nice. That is a really good uh, mural. I'm going to have to come back there with my camera. That's nice, right? Just to uh, describe to everybody, um, before you come down to visit Brooklyn Heights and uh, across from Borough Hall, it's uh, from the third base side. Um, I would say, in describing you know what it normally looks like from the stands, you're you're basically just up the third base line on you know right behind home plate, with a great view of the right field wall and the uh, the scoreboard, and of course uh, center field bleachers as well. It's a really great color mural inside the TD Bank, which used to be 215 Montague Street. Uh, well, in, you know, in many regards, and I got, I got to take a look at Borough Hall real quick. Uh, in many regards, you know, even though the building is just certainly not as pretty, um, and I don't know how long that mural has been there, but, but it's, it's, it's really great that there's been uh, this, um, and a lot more people have wanted to recapture history once more. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, look, City Bike right outside 215 Montague Street. All right, so uh, I guess we're going to head down to uh, to the flagpole, take a look at uh, Atlantic and Flatbush. Well, and, right, uh, out the, right outside the bank is the park for Jackie Robinson. Uh-huh. 
that it is. That's the first thing I saw, too. And good for them. Good for them for putting that there. Now, you're um, gonna walk. You're gonna walk to Barclays now. No, I'm hopping back on the bike. As a side of. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say, good idea. <laughs> this shouldn't take that long at all. In fact, I'm not, I'm, I'm not gonna take Atlantic. I'm gonna take. Uh, actually, I think it's uh, Skemmerhorn that goes right to. I looked and and um, goes right to uh, where the uh, uh, um, Williamsburg Savings Bank is. One one handsome place, as they call it. Yes. Now, that used to be, I'm not sure how much history you know about that building. Um, obviously, it was the Williamsburg Savings Bank. Did it used to house some other, was it just generally an office building for a good portion of its history? Or was it like, what, what was the bank, uh, did the bank take up the entire building? Well, the bank took up the majority of the building uh, until that whole thing went down. Uh, meaning the bank itself. And then right. for, the, for, for the majority of the history, believe it or not, that was a mecca for dentist's office. Oh, really? Yeah, it was just a preponderance of dentist's office and, uh, you know, um, medical offices of that nature. And then, uh, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, if you know better, I think Magic Johnson is, is now one of the part owners of that building. His group, his companies, or, or you know, or, or at least a, a part partner in that. I can neither confirm nor deny those allegations. There you go. <laughs> uh, but the lobby of the building itself is beautifully preserved. Uh, all the all the uh, iron railings and, and the teller windows and all the fixtures are still in place. You know, I've never been inside that. Uh, can you still go into the lobby without getting hassled? Uh, take a look, just to take a look, I mean. The last time I was there... Uh, no, they weren't letting anybody in there, but I had I had work there, so, you know, I'm privy to something sometimes. But by now, they're opening up uh, it on weekends, and I believe they're having weekend fairs there. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. And But, uh, no, the uh, all the characteristics of a turn of the uh, 20th century bank are definitely still there. All right, let's see if I can make this light. No, probably not. It's better than being dead, so I'm going to stop. <laughs> well, they had the turn. I probably could have made it, but you know, I'm not gonna. Hey, you know what? The bus is the bus is carrying me right now. Now, what are you doing? I, I had a natural block in the bus turning. Are uh, you from, Are you from now, Sorry, I'm now on uh, Livingston Street. Livingston Smith is the intersection, and I'm heading towards Flatbush. I'll probably turn and uh, and head down to a, a street that goes right up to the Williamsburg Savings Bank. But something that we're down the street from is a beautiful building uh, that houses the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Oh, that's a beautiful building indeed. And at night, uh, they have uh, fluctuating light patterns similar to like the Empire State Building that illuminated oh gorgeously. Oh yeah. Order of is that? Hold on, let's see. Gala, Galan, Galatan. What does that say? Let's see. I'm, uh, once I'm closer, I'll be able to read it better. All right. Let's see. Uh, 
Gallatin. Gallatin Place in Livingston Street. There's a really excellent building that's, uh, that's similar in style to the Montauk Club in Park Slope. Uh, uh, yeah. I'm trying to see if there's uh, anything that's, that we can read to get us a little bit more insight, but it doesn't look that, like there is. 177 Livingston Street is the building. Right. You're just short of uh, the original Abraham and Strauss building, which is now Macy's. Oh, look at that. Yeah, and Macy's, Macy's is right in front of me now. Yeah, I believe that building that you just described is still related to the tabernacle. Oh, okay, okay. So how long has this Macy's been a Macy's? Oh, Macy's has been around a long time. Uh, uh, in this corner. I, I see there is point, a plaque on it, actually. My, my entire it. lifetime, yeah. But the, the establishment started out as Abraham and Strauss. Uh, when Macy's, it's been Macy's my entire lifetime. Right. So uh, I would say they've been there maybe even since uh, the 60s. Well, the, uh, the once I get across the street, the plaque will let me know. And there's a, there's a bridge, uh, there's an overpass, excuse me, uh, from this parking lot. Meet me downtown for a few. There's there's all these. Uh, it's interesting. It's interesting. It looks like it's it's just uh, some art. The art um, the artist responsible for that took random uh, blurbs or random quotes from people just like you passing by and he took little piece little pieces of them and 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 posted them on the building side so that's a, uh, just uh, to clarify for everybody out there that's and this uh, parking lot building across the way from Macy's is what Mike is referring to regarding all these uh, these quotes that line this side of the building so I'm now standing in front of the Abraham and Strauss plaque this plaque commemorates the historic site of Abraham and Strauss. In 1885, Abraham Abraham and Joseph Weschler selected this site as the home of the retail enterprise that would become Abraham and Strauss. As a supporter of the Brooklyn Bridge, Abraham's vision and sense of civic pride led to the creation of a new downtown shopping district with this innovative store as its centerpiece. In 1893, the association of Weschler Abraham dissolved and in partnership with Isidore and Nathan Strauss of R.H. Macy and Company, the thriving business changed its name to Abraham and Strauss. In 1929, A&S became part of Federated Department Stores, Inc. In 1995, this renowned Brooklyn landmark merged with another historic New York City institution, Macy's. And there's another one on the other side, but I think it's the exact same thing, yeah. Yeah. The exact same thing. And, you know, uh, it's just throughout the city, it's one of my favorite things about, about the city, and this one looks like it was un- uncovered because there's no there's there's a plot of land that no longer has a building, and so on the side of it uh, where there must have been a building um, covering it, there's an advertise there's there's not an advertisement but there's you know one of those painted um, one of the old faded signs on the walls yeah one of the old painted signs on the wall for Chandler Piano Co. and it was clearly preserved there is there clearly used to be a building next to it that preserved it because on top of it. There's another one that says uh, Chandler Music Company. The Chandler, uh, it's, there's something else that it's, there's a space available for advertisement flag uh, sign um, stuck in front of it, unfortunately. But that is clearly that's been clearly worn down by history and rain and weather and whatnot. And this other one is 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 it's basically preserved. It's pretty neat. I love these uh, these old uh, signs painted on signs on the uh, side of brick that you find throughout the city. They're nothing short of charming, man. So we got uh, Jennifer's living rooms, which, you know, you see all of these old buildings 
that probably used to house, you know, independent companies that now have all these chains throughout. I mean, you obviously see that throughout the country and uh, nothing more evident than here in Brooklyn. But that is another fantastic building at the corner of Elm Place and Livingston Street. Over the last 20 years, and especially over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years in particular, uh, that whole area has been undergoing uh, tremendous change and revitalization. What was it like in between, uh, let's say, when the Dodgers left and the end of the 90s? It, it, was, it was dark times, man. It, it, it was. I mean, things just steadily got worse. I mean, it, 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 the, the story is complex. Obviously, you can't point your finger to one thing, but back in the early 70s, that was uh, that came on the heels of Mayor Lindsay just spending us into oblivion. So when the city appealed to the government for a bailout and collectively told New York, famously, <laughs> Gerald Ford famously told uh, New York City, you know, the headline was on the Daily News, drop dead, right or wrong? Yeah, right. Now, he didn't, those weren't his direct words, but that was the interpretation by the Daily News to make that famous headline. Right. So, you know, the the, the whole... First of all, the whole debt structure that ensued from that uh, was still being paid for, and I believe finally reconciled by Rudy Giuliani. We're talking a long time. Nevertheless, you know, starting in the late 60s, and now I can't speak before that, but certainly in the 70s and the 80s was definitely two two years spent uh, in decay and neglect and, and abandonment, and people fleeing the city, you know, people flocking out of the city, and people weren't necessarily replacing them, and a lot of properties, a lot of lots, and a lot of buildings, and things started going vacant. And on the one hand, people were, you know, doing insurance jobs, or on the other hand, people were just sitting on the property uh, with nothing better off to do, waiting for that one day where they could cash in, and that time is now. But certainly exactly. since the mid-90s on, uh, and it certainly intensified with the, with the, with the new century, uh, Brooklyn is undergoing revitalization unlike I, I've ever experienced before in my lifetime in this borough. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm glad to see it. I welcome it, and the more the merrier. You know, a lot of people uh, aren't as on board as I am. Uh, they're resistant, and uh, I, I, I understand I really do, but at the same time, I think because I've seen what happened to this place, I, I think uh, there's nothing but good things happening right now. Uh, I'm not tooting any horns. You know, Brooklynites tend to wear, you know, Brooklyn like a red badge of courage. You know, I, I guess that just comes with the property, but I haven't, I've haven't. i never seen better days or days as good as these in, in my lifetime. Right, exactly. Uh, across the way from Atlantic Avenue is uh, a plot of land, I'm sorry, across the way from the uh, the Hanson place is a plot of land that's being under construction, uh, that is under construction. And um, if you, I'm guessing it's probably BAM related. Do you have any idea what's going to be there? Uh, you're at where, especially, where, where particular are you? We're right across, we're at the Williamsburg Savings Bank now. Oh, yep. I, you know what, it's been answered. It's going to be residential, commu- commercial, and community facility. It'll be you, roughly, you know, probably like a 15-story high-rise. Are you talking about the lot between uh, One Handsome Place and Flatbush Avenue? Exactly. Okay, that was formerly, ago. I guess uh, there's a new owner, and now they're going high. <laughs> they're going high-rise on us, right? Yeah, it's probably, it's not going to be too big. It's probably going to be like uh, 15, 15 stories, I would say. And, yeah. you know, and right across the way is the Atlantic 
the Atlantic Terminal, which uh, certainly gives uh, gives off an Ebbetsfield Rotunda esque feel. Well, you know uh, what? But, but with a metal with a metal style. <laughs> you know what? I mean, just the view of uh, the complex with the with the mall behind where you are right now, uh, to me personally, is a slap in the face, saying that this is where the Dodgers could have been, and I think they got a lot of nerve. <laughs> For for right. you know making that mall into some kind of uh, you know faux pas replica of Ebbets Field. So what was that? What was that before Walter O'Malley left? What was that when he wanted the plot of land that is now the stadium, the the uh, the basketball stadium? What was well, this plot of land that is a mall now? Where where the stadium actually is now, where Barclays Center sits, was an open was was open for the uh, the railroads. Those were the open right. tracks. Right. So it's not that it was an open, you know, plot of land that, that went abandoned all these years. No, it was it was open-ended. Parts of it were, part, a, a large portion of it was, in fact, that, an open lot of land uh, that was owned by the city or owned by the MTA. And when they own things and have no particular use or can't afford things, that's what happens. You know, lots go abandoned, neglected, and they become eyesores and, all, and you know, and, and such things as, as, as that. But uh, for the most part, that's where the uh, open railroad tracks were for the Long Island Railroad and, and things of that nature. As far as uh, where the mall presently sits. And right, that's, that's on top of the, of, the, of the Atlantic Terminal, Long Island Railroad. Right. I mean, the Long Island Railroad was over there in some form or fashion, but uh, they've developed that, and that tall building with the uh, diagonal roof, that that's an MTA building. Okay, okay. I see. So the MTA has a, has a, some offices up there. Yeah, they got a big footprint there. So uh, you know, and why not? I mean, the Long Island Railroad is there, so. Yeah, exactly. Now, but from where you are, it would have been nice to have a ball a ballpark right there. You know, what are you into? I yeah, love, it would. I, I mean, I love yeah, that. Would, that that's that's the spot. And like I said, I think they got a lot of nerve for making those little quaint decorations to mimic the baseball park. Yeah, it's even more, um, you know, on, on the other side of Atlantic and Flatbush, on the other side of One Hanson Place, uh, where I was talking about the terminal being metal-looking uh, Ebbets Field Rotunda. Uh, yeah, the mall is uh, even more so because of its, um, it could easily, I mean, the, you, you look at it, it could easily be a facade around Major League Baseball, as, yeah. uh, the mall could be. <laughs> there you go. Now the right, other so way we're coming, up, we're coming up to the flagpole, by the way. Right now, the other way from where you were at Hanson Place, uh, behind one Hanson Place, behind that building would have been BAM itself, the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Right, oh, which is a gorgeous, gorgeous building. Ah, I love it, and it's been it was finally uh, the restorations to that place were completed uh, within the last five years, maybe five years ago. Uh, yeah, no, they did a remarkable job, and it is a gorgeous place. All right, well here we go. I am holding the Evansville flagpole right now. Excellent. And uh, this, now, flagpole, this flagpole stood in Evans Field until Brooklyn's Fame Ballpark was torn down in 1960. Bruce C. Ratner and Borough President Marty Markowitz are proud to permanently place this historic symbol of the Brooklyn Dodgers at the borough's new home for major professional sports. Now, in let, me, 2012. let me tell you my version of the story. <laughs> okay. Uh, that flagpole used to be on Utica Avenue when I was a kid. It, as far as I'm concerned, it was at an old VFW post or, you know, Korean War veterans or veterans, you know, place. And uh, I don't know how they came to acquire it, uh, but they affixed it to the side of the building, and it was there. And I know it was there because I saw it as a kid. 
because on that same block on Utica Avenue off of Farragut Road uh, was an indoor batting cages that I used to go with with my baseball team, my Little League team, and we used to uh, hit there in, in, you know, in the offseason and whatnot, blah, 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 blah. But uh, we always were able to at least at nighttime, because we went at nighttime, obviously, we were able to at least look through the fence and see it. And there was a little plaque adorned to it, you know, at the seal flagpole, whatnot. Uh, later in life, after I returned from the military and this and that and whatnot, and uh, guess what? Once I finally got around to starting the trolley blogger, it dawned on me to go back there and take a picture of it. That's when I found out uh, from the business next door that I was about a month late because some dude with a flatbed pulled up because he purchased it from uh, what be, what turned into uh, a little, uh, it was a church in some form or another. And the pastor there inherited it with the property, I guess, and he was looking to cash in on it because his church needed money. So he knew what he had, and he was holding out the top dollar, and then ultimately he found his price, and the guy next door told me, he says, yeah, you missed it by about a month. Some guy with a flatbed came, pulled it off, and nobody knows what happened to him since. And then, obviously, a couple of years later, we found out that Brett Yormark, the CEO of the Barclays Center and of the Nets, they had uh, purchased it with the intentions of, you know, what you see there at Barclays Center. And uh, they never told anyone. They kept it a secret, and they had the unveiling uh, uh, last year. Now, am I mistaken to say that it found its way to a Little League ball, ball field? What, the flagpole? Yeah. That one? Yeah. No. Okay. My version of the story is that that flagpole used to belong to a VFW post. Right, right. And it was there. I, I was wondering. I like. I had. I, I was wondering whether it made its way to uh, a little league ball uh, ballpark in between. Not um, that I know. Of. I'm only giving you my version. I don't know about yeah. that. And then that VFW post eventually became uh, a church, quote unquote. Right. And the pastor inherited it, and he sold it. Some guys bought it, flatbed, and hauled it off. <laughs> it's a great yeah. story, and and, uh, and then that that's um, you know very unique to your perspective. And then it, lo and behold, it materialized in front of Barclays Center. And uh, uh, I, I went I went to the ceremony, and uh, Sharon Robinson was there, Jackie Robinson's daughter, and I got to meet her and shake her hand and you know express my uh, my just profound honor that I was meeting her, you know. <laughs> I, was almost, I, I was speechless, so I really was. But uh, she was very nice, and uh, who else was there? Uh, oh, uh, Jamal Mashburn was there, and uh, a couple of people were there. Yeah, you know, so we're we're heading away from uh, that area now. Um, I'm going to be passing BAM, um, and uh, if, if, you know, I'm going to head over to the Brooklyn, uh, I'm sorry, to the Manhattan Bridge. So, Mike, is there anywhere else that I should stop before I uh, I head back home? Well, the funny thing is that on the way towards the bridge, I would have advised you to stop at Junior's. Now, if Junior's Restaurant Cafe is still open, because uh, apparently there's a new owner to that building, Junior's owns the, not owns, I guess, but they operate it on the ground floor. And once that building is converted, or there's a new building going up, one or the other, uh, supposedly Junior's is going to come back and they'll be able to reopen on the ground floor again. But if, in fact, that you pass it down on Flopish Avenue just prior to the bridge, 
it's open, by all means, stop in there because his walls are littered, littered with Brooklyn Dodgers memorabilia. And, oh, yeah. And, yeah, so uh, I would advise um, that. So so um, they're going and, to be closing down for renovations soon, but, uh, and, and that might have already happened is what you're saying. Uh, yeah, because I caught wind of that hmm, last year. But they're not getting rid of the, the franchise. It will be a juniors and renovated juniors. Yes. Yes, okay, good. That, that's going to change. Uh, now, right across the street from Juniors, you being, uh, you know, a, a theater aficionado, was the old uh, Paramount. Paramount building that's now LIU. Long Island City. Right. And the gym is, in fact, uh, I guess on a portion of, uh, it's probably built, you know, on top of what would have been the seats, basically. Uh, you know, based off of the photos that I've seen of the place. Yeah, it, 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 yeah, here, here it is. I'm, I'm coming up on LIU right now, the back, uh, the back facility on, on the other right. side of what clearly you can tell even from the back that it used to be a theater because of just its its, its massive size. Right, but since they since then they built the Wellness Center that's on Ashland Place, and uh, it's a really nice uh, home facility for the teams, the Blackbirds there. Uh, here's a little digression. I just passed, uh, passed a teriyaki burrito house that has the same color scheme as Dunkin' Donuts. It was a very weird sight. <laughs> <laughs> That's called identity, identity theft. Exactly, exactly. Um, the Arnold and Marie Schwartz Athletic Center, home of the Blackbirds. It was, the old Paramount. Like I said, technically former home of the Blackbirds. They opened up a new uh, gymnasium. Oh, really? Yeah, just right around the corner behind the university on uh, Ashland Place. Take a look. And the awning, the Long Island City awning, the Long Island University awning is, is new, so they had to replace the old Brooklyn. And all those theaters were dilapidated. Yeah, shame. It really is. Yeah, this was the corner where the uh, old Brooklyn Paramount. I believe my mom saw Diane Ross and the Supremes here. I mean, right right around there, you had so many uh, places in vaudeville, you know, uh, played, and so many theaters, and it, it was Brooklyn was Brooklyn was the world back in the twenties, man. Yeah, that's remarkable. It's it's a shame that it's uh, there's not more that can be preserved, but it's pretty cool that on the inside uh, of what used to be, according to you, what used to be the gymnasium because they have a new place. Um, right. It was the that's basically the top of the uh, the theaters. For all of you listening, you can look up um, the Brooklyn Paramount, and there should be some photos of the gymnasium and and some of and the some of the ceilings and the uh, the really fine architecture that uh, these palaces that used to be, that they used to, to make these movie houses into. And the original organ. Well, you know, we passed uh, we passed juniors. It's still open currently right now. I'm sure they're going to be closing soon to get that taken care of. And now I'm going to take a right onto the Fulton Mall. So okay, there you go. Hang a quick left. Hanging, hanging a quick right. Hanging a quick right, actually. Oh, okay. But yeah, it was a left. It was a left, and then a right on the flat onto uh, Fulton. But um, this has generally been a big uh, uh, commercial hub for a very long time. Long time. Fulton, the outdoor Fulton Mall has been in existence and operating again my whole lifetime. 
some unbelievable Victorian structures around this around this borough. And, and those, particularly in the Fulton Mall, a lot of those buildings are starting slowly but surely to uh, get recognition and are undergoing renovations. Yeah, like this Nordstrom that I'm passing right now. That's a fantastic looking building. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the corner of Fulton Mall and Hoyt Street, for all those of you out there. Passing the uh, the back or front of Macy's, however your perspective is. Uh, some uh, fantastic looking uh, green painted structure um, above Macy's. And there's Borough Hall right in front of me. Well, we're certainly coming to the uh, close to the end of this of this uh, podcast. So, Mike, what is your last word regarding Brooklyn right now? Right now, Brooklyn, your focus should be on your hometown team, your Brooklyn Nets, or as I like to call them, the Hoops of Flatbush. <laughs> I like that. That's great. And uh, that's it. That's that should be your focus this weekend. We're major league again. And, uh, you know, let's send uh, everyone throughout the NBA a message that, hey, <laughs> we're here and uh, we're not going anywhere. We're here to make noise. That's all. So you're, you're up 2-1 you're up to one on the series, correct? That's correct. And then uh, game four Sunday is, uh, you know, the second of the two home games that we'll have here, and then the series will shift back to Toronto again. And you were, you were uh, number three uh, out of eight, correct? Uh, actually, we entered the playoffs ranked number six. We were the sixth seed, and we're taking on the three seed Toronto Raptors. And you're doing uh, pretty solidly. I mean, you got some veteran presence on that team, and uh, we'll see what happens. And, and maybe you can uh, surprise some people when it comes to uh, the powerhouses out there. Uh, we'll see. You know, one game at a time. Uh, we have to advance into the second round before anything about this team would be considered, you know, anywhere close to a, uh, a success. But, uh, you know, the uh, imports of Kevin Garnett and Pierce have been, you know, proven good acquisition so far late in the games. The ball's been in their hands, and you got to feel good about that because the ball's been safe. And, you know, if anything, these guys aren't going to panic in the closing uh, seconds of the game. So uh, I think that's shown. Uh, if anything, they've been taking control, unlike other Nets who have been here for, you know, last year's playoff run who didn't necessarily do so. So here we go. Here we go. Michael, thank you very, very much uh, at the last second for joining me on this uh, Brooklyn Shrek on a bike. Thank you for having me, man. It's been my pleasure. Well, that's our show, everybody. Uh, join us next week and uh, join us for some more of these Brooklyn bike tours uh, as the weather gets even better. And uh, we venture into the, uh, the, the, the heart of the baseball season as well. So thank you very much, Mike. I'll talk to you soon. Have a great weekend, everyone. All right, everybody. Have a great weekend. Take care.